Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by the Elf Mark VDS racing team. On today's pod, we're going to look back at the action from the Moto2 and Moto3 classes at Mizano. Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison on today's pod. And uh, Neil, obviously enough, you were the boots on the ground in Mizano and uh, this was pretty strange weekend. Obviously, we had wet weather for all the way through the weekend and changeable conditions. Obviously, Moto2 got some dry weather running in on Friday, but really limited all the way through. Everyone went into the races a little bit unsure what to expect. It was a strange weekend, Steve, because of the weather, um, because of the time of year, um, and because of some of the racing. But mostly, I think, because I think I only had one pizza over the course of the five days I was there. And I don't think I took one picture of a tiramisu to send to David. I don't really know what happened there. So uh, apologies, David. I know you come to rely on those photos to keep you going, a uh, reason to get up in the morning to shave and shower and, uh, you know, prepare for your day. But um, I fell short this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering why my uh, blood pressure was um, uh, so much lower than normal during a, a Mizano race weekend. And I think I've just discovered why that is. I'll be honest, I had uh, tiramisu ice cream whenever I was in Barcelona and it was fantastic. I had that, David. I had a, a bit of crema catalana gelato as well. I was trying to do my best to feel like I was in Mizano, to be honest, Neil. And <laughs> I had gelato every day I was over in Spain. And do you know what? It was just great. Still still trying to come to terms with uh, your comment last week, Steve, when you said that Mizano is a better run to visit than Mugello. It still blow my mind. It is a better round to visit than Mugello. Mugello is a much better track. No one's going to argue with that. The racing's way better in Mugello. But if you're if you're going to a race weekend, Mizano beats it hands down. You're going to the Italian holiday destination of choice. So you've got loads of hotels. It's nice and accessible. It's Inside the middle of the town, there's loads of nice restaurants, loads of nice bars. You're down on the beach. You're five minutes from the track. There's no traffic at Mizano. Like, what's not to love? The track. <laughs> well, that's only a small part of the actual race-going experience. I would say one thing, actually, in fairness. The best Italian round to go to is actually the Imola by miles. And uh, I'd love it if it was added back to the World SBK calendar. Uh, could they do, could they do that? Is, it, is the... Or is the track just too um, difficult to fix? Uh, well, the track is still homologated for superbikes. It, it wouldn't be wouldn't be to the the A standard for MotoGP, mm. but uh, like I wouldn't be surprised if we went back there for superbikes. Yeah, well, look forward to that then. Get, to, to get Gordo to tell us about Imola. Oh, well, we do have, obviously enough, on the archive of the Paddock Pass podcast, we do have Gordo talking about Imola 2002. That was a pretty famous last round title decider. We've obviously got another one coming up soon enough in Superbikes. But uh, let's chat a little bit about the Moto2 and Moto3 title deciders that are coming up. Because, Neil, the momentum's shifting one way and the other in both classes. Really looks like even after the worst weekend of the season for Emmy Gardner, He's got one hand on the title now, whereas in Moto3, we've spent the whole season talking about Pedro Acosta, but now suddenly all the momentum is with Dennis Foggia. He's closed into within 21 points, so there's still a lot of ground to make up, but you wouldn't rule it out at this stage. Yeah, um, I think uh, if you're a guy that finds himself in the championship fight, the conditions that we witnessed last weekend at Mizano were probably the exact opposite of what you would have wanted. Um, because, as you said, Steve, at the top of the show, um, we had rain or rain then sort of damp conditions through Friday and Saturday. These guys had no real dry track time, even though we came here uh, the weekend, or sorry, the month before. Um and, uh, you know, Dunlop had a different tyre allocation, uh, sorry, rear tyre allocation. 
this weekend than they did uh, two weeks before. So a lot of these guys were going into the race a little bit, um, a little bit blind. And um, I think that is one of the reasons that contributed to what we saw with uh, Raul uh, crashing out. Because before that, he was riding beautifully. Yeah, because David, I wanted to ask you about Fernandez because obviously enough, we've seen over the course this season, he's just been so impressive coming in as a rookie, being able to be right at the front all the way through the season. He did have the momentum behind him with those three wins in a row, but that crash that we saw in the in, in the middle of the Moto2 race, it looks like that's going to be one of the defining moments of the season. Uh, yeah, and speaking of swings and momentum, um, it looked like the momentum was going completely uh, um, Fernandez's way. Uh, as he made his way through the th- through the pack, well, Remy seemed to be struggling, uh, and you know they were showing the virtual championship, and I think uh, Raúl was up by eight points um, right up until the point where he crashed out, and we were all looking at the I think the replay of Chantra. Uh, uh, Chantra versus Gardner, where you know Remy Gardner knocked, basically knocked um, uh, 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 Somkiat Chantra off, uh, and uh, then all of a sudden there's this sort of flash through the uh, through the image, and um, that was there. Yeah, there went Raúl Fernandez, and all of a sudden Remy Gardner's leading the championship again and increasing his championship lead. Um, but I think it has to be a bit of a concern. For uh, Remy Gardner, the fact that Fernandez is um, really uh, um, he's really on a roll. He's won what's that? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, Six, seven. five. <laughs> he's well, yeah, but he's he's won like five races in the last uh, of the last seven or eight. Uh, I think that's. I mean, he really seems to have. Uh, he really seems to have picked up momentum and it, it, just everything seems to be going his way. And it's, his, it's the second half of the season. He's learned the, the first parts of the... Um, uh, he's learned through the first part of the season uh, and seems to be sort of, you know, peaking now, which is making Remy's job, I think, very difficult, even though he does lead by 18 points. And Neil, what about for, for you for this weekend? Obviously, the, the battle between those two riders is one that we had expected to go all the way right to the end of the season. But this was a weekend where we saw Remy look very human all the way through. He struggled. He qualified in the fifth row of the grid. He finished down in the you know the, the lower ends of the top 10 and in seventh. And this was a real tough, challenging weekend for him. It was, yeah. Um, and speaking to him afterwards, I mean, he, he knew he got let off. I went into his team job afterwards and he was speaking with his... Uh, with his manager, I think Paco Sanchez, and they were both, you know, the air was one of total relief that they had really got out of jail um, because they, I think they knew that it was it was looking bad. As David said, um, Raul at one point was eight points up in the championship. Um, but then I think it's worth reminding us that Raul is still a rookie in this class and these were not ideal conditions for someone pushing ahead at the front of the race. Um, I think there were a couple of factors, you know, that, that maybe caught Raul out Um the first time that the guys were riding in those conditions all weekend. Um, as I mentioned before, Dunlop went one step softer with their rear tire allocation and uh, everyone went with the softer option. So that was a, a new soft rear tire for those guys this year um, that they were running in the race. And um, Remy and Ralph were both running the, the harder front and Remy was just saying that um, basically with the added grip with the rear, sometimes that would just cause the front to give way a little bit, even in straight line braking. Um, and I heard from someone at Dunlop who was saying that uh, the two IO guys were actually 
they were going to go with the harder rear tire option, which was the same tire they ran in last month's race. But when they saw the whole grid go with the softer one, they sort of not panicked, but they thought, oh God, well, if everyone, everyone else on the grid's going for it, I guess we better do that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seems that that, uh, that caught Raul out. Also, it's quite funny when you see Raul's interview after the race, he's saying, I don't know what happened. It's, it's impossible to know what happened. Yet, um, if you look at, uh, there's a video, I think on Spanish provider The Zone in his garage afterwards when he's debriefing with his mechanic, he says, you know, I didn't do anything different to the lap before. Okay, maybe I break just a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I did nothing different, you know. So from what I heard, Raul break just a tiny little bit later and he was actually going faster than he had been previously in previous laps uh, when he touched the brakes later. And, um, yeah, in less than ideal conditions, that uh, that seemed to happen. So, um yeah, a uh, crazy crash seems to have swung the championship momentum back in Remy's favour. But um, yeah, you still wouldn't say it's quite over yet. 18 points with two runs to go should be enough. But I mean, yeah, we've seen strange, stranger things happen. I found it quite interesting there, David, that Neil was saying that uh, for the IO team, they were going to go that different route to everyone else. And then they fell into line with everyone else. This caught them, or at least you know, for, for Raul, took some way of his confidence. It's a little bit uh, the opposite of what we saw in the MotoGP class with Ducati going the opposite route and it being the wrong call. Yeah, exactly. But uh, again, in both cases, it underlies the importance of tyres. You know, in this case, it's the lack of experience with that softer rear and understanding what it does to the front. Uh, and obviously for Pekka Benyar, Jack Miller, it was more about um, the fact that that hard front was absolutely borderline and uh, they just let a they just let a little bit of heat get into it in both cases again uh, both Banyai and Fernandez it's sort of just a moment the smallest mistake a really really small mistake but that small mistake makes just a huge amount of difference in conditions like this Let's uh, move on then to the race winners as well, Neil, because obviously a 1-2 for Mark VDS, the best day of the season for them. Sam Lowe's taking his first win since Qatar and Augusto Fernandez just continuing that rich vein of form that he's been on for most of this season, but especially from Assen onwards, he's been able to find the consistency to be able to be pretty much a regular podium man. Yeah, yeah, great ride from uh, from both guys. Um, you know, as you said, Steve, uh, Sam, only his fourth podium of the season, which I find quite surprising. He hasn't been on the podium since uh, Jerez. He's had a lot of good races where he's been up at the front, but finished in fourth. And I think that's maybe been something that's uh, just been a bit bit annoying, really, that uh, he hasn't quite managed to get onto the podium since uh, since then. But yeah, it was a, it was an excellent race from him. He gambled with the uh, the softer front, one of the few guys to do that. And uh, I mean, I don't think Sam had ever done more than he said something like ten laps on that tire. Um, all year, <laughs> you know, Dunlop were basically making their their tires or their tire locations a bit softer. They're experimenting a little bit more as we go through the year, and um, yeah. So for Sam to basically um, take a stab in the dark, um, I think it was the team that was recommending that he do that. I think it was quite impressive. You look at the race time; the race was 15 seconds faster than the race we had in September. So they were doing a really, really fast pace, and uh, Lowe's as well as Aaron Kinnett, they were the guys leading. Most of that. So, um, yeah, really strong performance from Lowe's and great performance from uh, Augusto as well. He'll be ruining that uh, long lap penalty he was given in uh, for holding up, I think it was Kinnett, in um, qualifying. 
Um, that dropped him back to 14th, but his pace, I think, from you know sixth, seventh lap, he was the, the fastest guy on track. Um, so Augusto was really, really, really strong. Probably his best performance of the season. And that saved by Sam Lowe's, um, you know, when he was overtaking uh, Aaron Connett, you could, I watched it and I watched it again in slow motion. And you can see that, you know, the front just goes completely, but he still sort of saves it, stays on, stays upright and uh, and gets past uh, Connett. I think um, that was, it was, it was incredibly fun to watch and uh, fun to see. It was a fantastic, it was a fantastic pass. Uh, maybe also a little bit of uh, inexperience with that tyre. Obviously enough, Neil, um, just you mentioned about Augusto and his performance. Mizan has been a good track for him in the past, obviously a race winner there a couple of years ago. He hasn't had that race win with Mark VDS. He's had a lot of podiums with them over the course this year. I think it was, what, five podiums so far this year. Is there any chance he's going to be able to sign off before the end of the year with a race win? I think so, Steve, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, we saw Augusto fighting towards the front the last time we went to Portimao, and that was kind of before he made... Uh, the big step forward, I think, in a private test that uh, they did at Aragon, maybe that was before the Jerez race, um, and he said that that was kind of key from there. They've basically found a good base set, and and, um, and they haven't been changing much on the bike, whereas at the start of the season, they were flipping changing from uh, one homologated Calix chassis to the other mid-weekend, you know, doing massive, massive changes, literally changing <laughs> fundamental parts of the bike. Um, so, uh, so I think, yeah, Augusto could be one to watch in Portimao. Um, and, um, you know, he's, he's, I, just, I think he's just been very, very impressive, really, how he's been riding of late. Um, I think that was Mark Fidias' first one-two finish since uh, the Austrian Grand Prix uh, in 2017. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time coming as well for Mark Fidias. Yeah, and I think as well, when you look at Augusto's season, those three non-scores in a row from Hareth, Le Mans, and then Mugello, he was actually running quite well in those races, just didn't come away with anything. And it's been a season a bit like that for the VDS team, where they've had good potential all the way through the year, like you mentioned there about Lowe's and his run of you know fourth, fifth place finishes. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they can deal with these last two rounds as well. Obviously, Lowe's went really well in Portimao in the qualifying session, obviously had the crash turn one. He'll be out to make amends for that. Valencia is a track that, you know, in November is always a bit of a lottery as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, Sam, heroic performance at Portimao last year. Um, decent was running uh, at the front of the, the first race we had in Valencia as well last year. Um, so, yeah, two good tracks that, you know, he could maybe um, score well at. And you're looking at the championship. Lowe's is 115 points back off Remy. And if you look at uh, four of his non-scores, he crashed in Portugal and France, in Mugello and Aragon. You know, he had race-winning potential in all of those uh, all of those particular weekends. In the best-case scenario, you know, Sam could be going into the final. If you, you know, if he, say he won those four races, I know it's a huge if, but, you know, the potential this year means that he hasn't been far away if he hadn't crashed out in those races, he would still be, you know, in with the shot of the championship here. So um, definitely something to look at next year, you know, just um, trying to eradicate that. But yeah, I think um, he has a good chance to finish the season in, in a good way. And I think, you know, Sam has been riding riding well after he obviously lost a bit of confidence after the um, the two crashes in Le Mans and, and in Mugello. But I think since then he's steadily been building himself up and he's posted some really good performances in the second half of this year. I think it's been a overall a, a good season. Yeah, it's uh, like what we talked about in the season preview for Moto2, actually, David, where Lowe's can be that reference 
for yeah. the rest of the field and the young riders coming through. And by and large, he still has been able to function as that throughout the course this year. You look at Fernandez, you look at, well, Raul Fernandez and Remy Gardner stepping up to MotoGP next year. No surprise given the performances they've had. And uh, that's what you need in, in the Moto2 class. You need to have riders that you can gauge the performance of everyone else by. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you need, uh, you need uh, if you like a gatekeeper, you need a really good rider in Moto2 uh, as a reference. So also for MotoGP team managers, so you know roughly what you've got. Uh, you, know, you know the level uh, that riders are having to perform at. Um, uh, as Neil says, you know, if Sam Lowe's doesn't make, if Sam Lowe's makes a few fewer mistakes then it's a very different championship uh, you know and, and Lowe's is much closer to the front and uh, I think the you know next year is going to be the same next year if you want to go a MotoGP in 2023 you have to be able to beat Sam Lowe's on a regular basis you have to uh, you know you have to finish ahead of him in the championship that is not easy he is uh, he is still I think the reference rider in Moto2 final couple of Moto2 points and I think obviously the most important one Neil the uh, VR46 bikes did they look good in person? I think so yeah um, I would say they were very yellow but they certainly stood out um, did they quite, look good on the telly David? They were unique I, I, I like the fact that they stood out so much uh, they were very bright um, they were remarkably yellow um, uh, but actually once they when they were just showing them you sort of thought oh that's a bit much really but then the race started and you think yeah that's great you know exactly where you know where Vietti is and all the rest of it and all the, and the same in MotoGP you could see Marini you didn't have to think like hang on wait a minute which bike is that? because uh, the, there's so often there's a bunch of bikes which are um I don't know, sort of brown or blue or something. There's a bunch of blue bikes, and you're going, hang on, which which blue bike is that? Which particular shade is that? What brown bikes have there been, Dave? <laughs> you need to you need to <laughs> clean your TV screen. <laughs> it's probably it's usually Neil get... that has to do that. Like, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's all part of getting old. It's uh, uh, you know, who are you people? I um, you're, you're, I don't recognise you. Get off my lawn. Um, obviously enough. Um, it was easy to spot the uh, VR46 bikes this weekend, Neil. But uh, Vietti was easy to spot as well because he's right at the front. This was, what, the third time this year he's qualified in the top three rows of the grid and the another his first top five finish. He's had a few top sixes as well. Like, this was a, a really strong performance by him all the way through the weekend. Yeah, he was getting there. He's, he, sorry, he is getting there, isn't he? I mean, um, he's had, uh, I think, what, three top 10 finishes now in the second half of the season. Um, and um, yeah, it's just kind of, become um not almost not consistent top 10 but um you know he's more often than not now he is uh he's, he's up there and he gives you the impression that he is um he's getting the hang of it he seemed to lose his confidence completely earlier in the year that big warm-up crash that he had in um Hareth really seemed to knock him knock him for six for a couple of races um but yeah he's uh, he's working at it and um i think understanding the Moto2 machine and you know I was sitting in third place for uh, a little bit of this race um, before Augusto Fernandez came through the pack so um, yeah really strong stuff from Fietti and um, you know enjoyed a much much better weekend than his teammate Marco Bozzecchi. We've looked at the Moto2 class we're going to look at the Moto3 class now and David this battle that we're seeing between Pedro Acosta and Dennis Foggia it's been a real season of two halves for both riders but right now all that momentum's with Foggia but he still has 21 points to make up. Yeah, I mean, 21 points in two races is a lot. Um, and 
but it, I mean, it really does look like Foggia is capable of it. They've really found uh, some speed. The Leopard Honda team always seem to do this. They always seem to find um, something somewhere in that Honda to give them an advantage. Um, they know the bike very well. They've been racing it for a long time. Uh, but they always seem to find, you know, that little bit of speed uh, somewhere. And Foggia has just been outstanding. <coughs> he has been exceptional throughout the, uh, well, yeah, I mean, sort of the second half of the season, really, almost since uh, since the Saxon ring. Um, we were all basically handing the trophy to Pedro Acosta early, the, earlier in the season. Um, but as Nicky Hayden says, that's why we line up on Sunday. You know, uh, anything can happen and it ain't over till it's over. Yeah, Neil, like Fudge has come from 83 points back after only five rounds at the start of the season. 97, he Steve. <laughs> 97? <laughs> after the Stirling Grand Prix, yeah, six races Whoa. ago, he was 97 points back. That's I'll tell you what, like, well, I'll be honest, because I was just going to say he's come back from that far back after only five rounds and he managed to claw back a big chunk of it and then left Austria behind like that again like how do you keep taking knocks like that and keep giving yourself the chance to get back into it yeah it's uh it's a strange one um Foggy, i mean i expected him to be challenger for the championship uh at the start of this year um i think it's more of a puzzle as to why he was so rotten in the first five races i know he had that second place in Portimao, but he scored no points in the two races in qatar he scored no points at Jerez. He scored no points at Le Mans, I don't think. Um, and as his team boss, Christian Lundberg, told me over the weekend, he said, how often do you see a rider that's had six non-scores win the championship? Pretty much never. So I think those guys, to an extent, have that have that mindset that, you know, it's, it's probably a bit too much, a bridge too far to win the championship this year. So there's no pressure on us. But at the same time, Foggia has said, I think it was, uh, it was at Silverstone, was it? That... Um, he had absolute conviction that he could still do this. So um, I think they've just found a nice balance. Speaking to Lundberg as well, they said they've basically got the same base as they had at the start of the year. It's more been about um, fixing Fodge's mentality, um, making him buy into the project. I think there seems to have been... I basically interviewed him for a piece that I'm writing for uh, David's website, actually, which should be on uh, later today, Thursday. Um he was saying basically there seemed to be a lot of time last year where Foggy just didn't really buy into the Leopard way of working and seemed to have some outside influences, which he did not name, uh, that were telling him or indicating to him that this might be the case. Um, and he, he just was furious last year that Jama Masia was, uh, was beating him, was faster than him. And uh, he had this kind of feeling that the team were working for Masia and not for him and didn't seem to be quite a full degree of trust there. Um, but uh, that certainly has been rectified. And um, Fodge's ride on Sunday was class. I think it would have been the ride of the season had Acosta not done some of the things he had done earlier in the year. Speaking of the influences, um, uh, I'm sure, um, uh, well, there's a long history of, uh, of motocross dads getting involved and uh, ruining things for people. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, the ride, by, the, the ride by Acosta, it really does seem like Acosta is... Not so much going to pieces, but just really struggling. And you have to wonder, uh, as a 17-year-old, to be built up and built up and built up uh, and then get that lead, you would start to get, all, well, I, I won't say lazy, but you start to get complacent. 
Um, I was just looking while you were talking about um, uh, Fodgers, was it there's no scores. He did have 45 points after seven races, and those 45 points were one second place and one win, uh, and the rest were all zeros, which is just an astonishing uh, record, really. Um, and you do wonder what would have happened if it had been if it had happened earlier. But um, yeah, I mean Acosta. The, it, I thought it was a fantastic ride by Acosta just to salvage what he actually managed to salvage uh, after Foggia came through the field. I think Foggia got a little bit lucky in the sense that um, there was a big group at the front again, all fighting and holding each other up, and f- that gave Foggia the chance to uh, you know get back another couple of seconds, uh, come back, join the leading group, and then when, once he got there, he just sort of sliced his way through. Through the through there and there was um, uh, and that was sort of more or less game over almost, um, but for Acosta to actually salvage what he did because he did like it, uh, like look at one point like he was going to be sort of you know maybe sixth or seventh, and that would have been a really really big um, uh, a big loss. And I also I loved Acosta's face on the podium that was um, hilarious. <laughs> I loved his face in the press conference afterwards. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, yeah, and I would like to I would like to give a special mention to our our colleagues in the media for attempting to extract some information from Pedro Acosta. But uh, <laughs> no matter how hard they tried, they failed miserably. <laughs> he was not in the chatty mood. <laughs> Blood from a stone, Neil. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first time I think I've seen him like that actually, because usually he's quite bubbly and and upbeat. Um, even after you know some kind of crazy events like the the crash in Austin, for example, um, but he was really pissed off, um, and he wouldn't intimate what exactly, but he said that there were some issues on the bike that were holding them back, um, basically when Foggy and Massey were breaking three. So um, I still think he's in a good position. He's going to two tracks that he knows well. He won at Portimao earlier this year. And it was a good ride, as you said, Dave. Um, there was a, a moment in the race where it really looked like he was in deep trouble. He was going to get swallowed up by the group behind him, but he rallied. He passed Darren Binder in the last lap. He got third. Could have been a lot worse. Yeah, you mentioned Darren Binder there as well, Neil. We didn't actually talk about it on the main podcast for this week, but obviously you talked about it on the on the Paddock Notes shows during the week for Patreon. And uh, Darren Binder confirmed as a Yamaha MotoGP rider for next season. Comes away with a fourth place finish in this race. Just... Uh, what were your thoughts on the news by Binder? Obviously, it's been expected. It's been coming for a while. But, uh, David, what did you think when the news was actually confirmed? Uh, well, yes, I mean, the the same as always. It's an interesting gamble. It's going to be interesting to see what he can do on a big bike. But um, And he gets onto the easiest bike on the grid, which is, uh, uh, which is good. Uh, it, it does feel like this was a secondary i mean it was something that the team couldn't get out of rather than a very conscious choice a gamble the way that they gambled in the past on the uh, the Patronus gambled on Quattararo it doesn't feel like that it feel like there was a contract signed and they couldn't get out from under it i just don't understand that though dave because surely it couldn't have cost that much to pay out a contract uh, yeah, well, I don't understand it either, but um, you don't know what penalty clauses were in there. You don't know. I mean, you just don't know anything about the whole situation. So, or uh, yeah, I, I can't speculate uh, about anything. And the other thing is, it's also about who else is available. Do you know what I mean? It's also about who else, because by that time, once it looked like Darren had this uh, second seat um, tied up, which we heard about, I think, back in Austria, 
uh, then it means that other riders start signing other contracts and it makes it much more difficult. Um, and also it's possible that you know, things are being he held open for uh, in case Toprak uh, ever de decides to come over to MotoGP, which I don't think is going to happen right now, uh, but might happen in the future. Uh, so yeah, I think there's lots and lots of things being, I think there are other things at play that we don't know about, uh, which means, you know, Darren gets his chance and, you know, good luck to him. Yeah. Everything I've been told in the superbike paddock is that Toprak is nailed on for next year to stay in superbikes. And then don't be surprised if he moves in 2023, his contract will be up by then as well, by all accounts. And that's whenever you might well find that, uh, Toprak's in play for a lot of other manufacturers as well. Neil, what was your thoughts on, on the Binder news? Yeah, similar to what uh, David just mentioned there. Um, surprised initially, um, whenever this was first floated, I think it was back in Austria in August. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and I think we've been expecting it for the last while. Um, yeah, I would say it's it's going to be difficult for Darren. Um, it's a, He's a talented rider for sure, but it's a big, big step up. And in a in a championship as, as fiercely competitive and close as MotoGP is now, where you are fighting tooth and nail over tenths of a second, um, it's it's going to be a big thing. I mean, he's a guy that's had just a one race win, I think, in his career, um, and hasn't really. I, I really struggle. Aside from that race that he won in Barcelona last year, I struggle to remember a time that Darren has led a race, you know, from the front and, and sort of dictated play and. I just think that that is something that is, is so necessary in, in MotoGP. Um, you know, doing a lot of work by yourself and, and not sort of relying on being in the, the gaggle. Um, I think it's going to be tough. He's talented. He's in a good team. He's on the most neutral, friendly, or rookie-friendly bike in the class. So that that's great. Um, but uh, I think it could be a big ask for Darren. Um, and it's a one-plus-one deal. Um, everyone's contract is going to be up at the end of 2022. So, um, yeah, I think he has, he has a big job basically to, you know, to be a, a regular fixture in, in MotoGP beyond next year. Um, but, um, you know, he's, he's clearly a talented guy and it could just be that he's one of those guys whose, whose riding style is more suited to a bigger bike than, than Moto3. David, I was just mentioning there that we have one topic to cover as well, just to finish off today's show. And uh, it was a big news story. It was the change of the age limits for Grand Prix classes. And we touched on it briefly on uh, the regular Paddock Pass podcast. But uh, basically from 2023 we're going to make sure that from all grand prix classes everyone's going to be 18 years of age or older there's going to be changes in the cev moto 3 and the red bull rookies cup where the minimum age will be 17 at that stage you're going to have it where airbags are compulsory in all fim sprint championships and it is a case of looking at grand prix style tracks and making a big change because even for the talent cups the asia talent cup the british talent cup anything like that it's going to be where the minimum age is eventually going to be raised to 14 as well these are obviously going to be staggered over the next two years but it's it's a big step and as well as that we're going to have maximum fields as well that are going to be much smaller than what we have now is grid sizes yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a big step and it would be wrong to think of it as the only step. This is just like the first step in a series of changes, uh, which I think will, with the objective basically of, of, of breaking the fear or, or reducing the chance that a large group is going to end up riding together. Um, the minimum age, I think, is 
Um, I think it's also sensible because it gives riders more of a chance to actually grow and mature because, you know, riders change so much between 15 and 18. Well, kids grow, uh, change so much between 15 and 18. It's, uh, it's almost like a, like a different world. Um, the grid sizes are going to be important and also keeping kids, basically keeping uh, young kids off of Grand Prix tracks, like you say, is going to be um, uh, is going to be a big difference to, to get kids onto sort of smaller tracks, smaller bikes, um, uh, get them more used to racing before they step up to, to uh, the, the Grand Prix level. And I think um, the next step that we will see after this is going to be some kind of change to the technical rules to make the bikes a bit more difficult to, to, to ride, to actually sort of spread the field out more based on talent rather than just being, you know, your, your willingness to take risks to stick in a group. Yeah, I have to say, obviously, in the Supersport 300 class, 15 years of age is the current minimum age for that class that's going to be raising or raised to 18 much smaller fields like up until this year we had to have you know pre-qualifying basically so you had 50 riders all trying to make the field and uh, i think it's a really positive step to reduce that field size but i would say one thing as well that and this is something that a lot of riders have said is that like you mentioned david unless the technical rules change a lot of this is just it's almost window dressing for some riders in their view what do you think of it neil I think it's um I think it's a sensible move. I think it's encouraging to see that uh, the the relevant people in charge of these things are paying the necessary attention to um, what has happened this year um that we can't go on uh, in this fashion. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's entirely encouraging to see that um, they have paid attention and have been dealing with the situation with the kind of seriousness that it merits and deserves. Um, there are still steps to go. There are still some questions that I think are, are valid. Um, for example, um, you know, the, the age limit in Red Bull rookies will be raised from 13 to 15, I think it is, by 2023. Um, but I would still posit that a 15-year-old on Red Bull rookies uh, bikes around the circuits that... Um, that championship visits is still maybe a little too young, um, even though those bikes are, are not as powerful as, as Model 3 machines. And just the, the, the kind of the the nature of the racing that we have in that class um, is maybe... Yeah, exactly, because those bikes are precisely... I mean, the, the point of the Red Bull rookies is to have as equal machine as possible, uh, you know, and not to touch the machine, not to learn to set up the machine, to let the bikes be as equal as possible, to, to, to uh, you know, make everything as equal as possible. And that naturally creates very, very uh, uh, close racing. So Neil is absolutely spot on there. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, there's still things that we we, we can we can change, and um, but I think it's it's encouraging. Our colleague Matt Oxley um, sat down and had a conversation with uh, Jorge Villegas about a month, maybe two months ago. I think this was after Jason DePasquier and Hugo Mian's deaths, um, and Matt was asking him about lowering the the age limit. Sorry, raising the age limit, um, and he said at that point Villegas didn't give the impression that he had even given it the slightest thought. So I think it's it's quite positive that certainly some members of, of um, you know, the FIM or Dorna um, have, have really um, have really taken this on board and, and know that something has to change um, because, it, yeah, we can't go on like this. 
Yeah, the the two changes which I found most interesting and, what is, and which I think will have the biggest long-term impact were the, uh, um, they're almost like notes in this announcement that there would be two, uh, or that they were going to, that Dorna and the FIM would start talks with uh, equipment manufacturers about uh, increasing or, you know, how to change safety equipment to uh, uh, try to minimize the effect of an impact when when riders get hit, and also uh, about providing warnings on the bike, so uh, in improving communications so that riders would automatically get a warning on their dashboard immediately as soon as someone crashes, um, basically as soon as someone crashes, and also as soon as someone crashes right in front of them. There's a lot of work to be needs. That, that's difficult to implement right now because uh, the way that the... Uh, um, communication works is via the transponder. Uh, there's a transponder on the bike and uh, it receives and sends information through the timing loops around the track. And there's, I think, something usually like 16 and 17 of these timing looms are, uh, around the track, but that still leaves large sections of track where there is no message uh, going uh, going to and from the bike. Um, and what they really want is like an immediate warning on the bike that there that, that something has happened. That means uh, implementing some kind of a network around circuits, uh, some kind of wireless network around the circuits uh, to be able to transmit things. And there's you know there's a lot of technical technical complications in actually achieving that. Um, you've also got to find a way to do it, and you've also got to way. If someone suddenly sits up and reacts to a uh, to an accident, you've got to make sure that everyone gets the information at exactly the same time. Because if one person sits up in the middle of the pack um, because there's been a crash ahead, then that can cause another crash, and you've got to uh, prevent these sort of you know knock on effects from uh, from happening. So it's a, it's a really difficult subject, but I think it's absolutely the direction. And again, the safety equipment stuff it's it's really difficult to impact to absorb the energy involved. In a you know uh, uh, even a motorcycle weighing as little as what is it eighty five kilos or whatever a a, a, a three bike weighs uh, eighty five kilos traveling at one hundred and thirty one hundred and fifty kph that's a lot of energy that needs to be absorbed and so designing that in a way that uh, prevents it uh, I think there, there there's definitely gains to be made there. Yeah, and I think it goes to show as well that there's no simple solutions to very complicated questions. And it's about step-by-step -step progress on it. And that's all you can really do. And obviously this year has really shown and, and heightened everyone's awareness to it as well. But uh, it'd be interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of years. And uh, obviously enough, we saw this weekend when Quattararo was able to win the championship. He was one of those riders that came through earlier than most of his contemporaries, a year earlier having won the CEV championship. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the CEV Moto3 Junior World Championship as well, because with their age limit increasing, the talent cups increasing as well, it's going to change how they're, they're structured in national championships. And what's really going to be interesting is to see if this makes a big impact in developing riders from different countries because we always look at British riders not getting the opportunities to go over at an early enough age this could well put that into a little bit of a knock-on effect as well Dave yeah I mean it's also going to filter it's going to act as a natural filter just to sort of you know based on age sort of thing and it does mean that you don't have to be riding a motorbike at sort of three years of age uh, a lot of these riders they're almost riding before they can walk <laughs> 
quite literally sometimes. Um, and so I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a big, big, um, it's going to give riders a chance joining later on because not only is it, uh, are you sort of making it that riders have to be 18 before they, uh, they join, Raising the age to eighteen also means uh, it pushes sort of the upper the uh, the upper age limit up as well. It gives you a chance to start racing a little bit later in life and still have the uh, still have the experience uh, to get on. And I and I also wonder if they will change the the maximum age, which I think is twenty eight in Moto three at the moment. Um, I wonder if they'll raise that. Maybe they should raise uh, do the same and raise that to thirty. Yeah, I'd like to see where they just got rid of the maximum age, to be honest, because I still like the prospect of having some riders that just stay in those smaller classes rather than get a little bit lost. Because what's been interesting for me going to work in a few endurance races over the last few years is where you see a lot of riders that were great 125 riders and you never saw sight or sound of them again. And I think it can be it can be good so that they can still have a world championship career. And I think that would be something I'd like to see changed. Obviously enough, like you said, David, with the, the maximum age as it is right now, that would be a big step to change that. But you'd have to wait and see. Obviously enough, though, we've uh, covered an awful lot of ground from the second round of, uh, well, the second races at Mizano. We've still got two rounds to go. Like we said, two championships still to be decided, the Moto2 and Moto3 championships. We're going to continue to produce a lot of extra content on Patreon over the course of the rest of this season. So check out patreon.com forward slash podcast, where for $3 a month, you're able to get a lot of extra Extra content. So Niels had interviews with Lynn Jarvis from Yamaha, Kevin Schwantz at uh, the Coda Grand Prix as well. He, he was able to sit down with him. We're going to have a lot of additional content like that through the course of the winter. We also have a $10 tier. So that's where you can become a Paddock Insider. And that's where at each day of each Grand Prix, we sit down and we have a chat about what's happened over the course of the weekend. Straight from the rider debriefs, we try and bring it up to speed as quickly as possible. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. But uh, from myself, Steve English, from David Emmett, from Neil Morris, and all the team at the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Let's uh, all three of us clap out of time. Three... Two, one. Oh, you two are really good this week.